Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on America, China, and the fate of the Indo-Pacific. I am Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I am joined by my co-host, John Yu, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley. We are thrilled today to be joined by my old friend and John's new friend, Richard McGregor. Uh, For those of you who are loyal listeners uh, to this podcast, meaning you probably have some type of interest in Asia, Richard is no stranger to you, nor is his name or his works. Uh, He is a longtime journalist, having uh, reported for the Financial Times for many years, including uh, years in China, where he was the Beijing bureau chief. Uh, and the author of widely acclaimed books, including The Party, the mandatory reading for those who want to understand just what is the Chinese Communist Party. More recently, Asia's Reckoning, which looks at the competition between China, Japan, and the United States over the future of Asia. And most recently, an ebook entitled uh, Xi Jinping, The Backlash, which we are going to talk about. Uh, so it is a, a great pleasure to have Richard on the program with us. Richard, hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me, Misha and John, and uh, thanks for the very kind introduction. And we should note uh, to uh, our listening audience that you are joining us from Australia. Uh, so we have a, a huge time difference that we're navigating, and we're, we're really grateful uh, to get you. Uh, I assume it's winter down there. Is that correct? It's winter, and it actually is cold today. Well, depending how you – it's California cold, 12 degrees, but with uh, wind chill much, much higher than that. Wow. Well, well I am in uh, – John is in uh, in lovely, balmy – Northern California, while I am sweating in the swamp, metaphorical as well as literal of Washington, D.C. So it's a, it's nice to talk to someone who's sitting in cooler weather. So, um, Richard, why don't, we, why don't we start right off? Um, I, I thought we would start, um, maybe go backwards. We, we'll, we'll start with your newest uh, book on Xi Jinping and, and what you see happening. And then we're going to work back because this is also the 10th anniversary of the party. And, I, and it's a good time, I think, to take stock of some of the, the trends that you identified and things that you talked about and see how they've stacked up uh, in, in your own mind and what you might uh, do differently were you to update it or reissue it. But uh, what's really on everybody's minds uh, is Xi Jinping. And there's an enormous debate, as you know, over Xi Jinping, his significance, whether he is the most powerful leader since Mao and what that actually means, whether he has transformed the party and the government of China, or whether he is uh, simply continuing a line of reform started by Deng Xiaoping and and uh, sli- perhaps slightly breaking with prior leaders such as Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin. But you've written an ebook called The Backlash. Um, I'd like you to tell us about it if you could, but maybe as a way into that, can you put Xi Jinping into context? How do you see Xi Jinping as a historical figure in the history of the Communist Party of China and the People's Republic, which this year celebrates its 70th anniversary? Yes, and an important anniversary as well, because that the, the Communist Party in China will soon have outlasted the Soviet Communist Party uh, in power, which of course is a imp- very important anniversary for them to mark. As to Xi Jinping, I've kind of got, you know, two Xi Jinpings, if you like. 
there's the first Xi Jinping who's, who's a committed communist, uh, a committed member of the Communist Party, an absolute belief that uh, only the Communist Party has both the ability and the right to rule China, uh, the verdict of history, as they say in Beijing. Uh, and he, of course, has an extra layer on top. He's red nobility. Uh, his father was a, a storied revolutionary and the like. But his father, of course, and Xi Jinping himself went through all the sort of hurly-burly of the Communist Party in China and Mao's brutal political campaigns and were exiled, uh, felled from power, etc., etc. So it's very interesting to see how Xi Jinping handles that because he, he reveres, you know, he's taken the position that he reveres all of uh, uh, China's past leaders, uh, no matter what Mao did to him, his family, and she himself, he reveres Mao, uh, he reveres Deng, and all of the people in the party pantheon. Not only that, he, he also reveres Lenin and Stalin, in other words, the Chinese Communist Party's antecedents. So, you know, no cracks of light uh, in, in the Communist Party for Xi Jinping. So that's that's one part of it. The second part, which we're still learning about, I think, is Xi as a leader. You'll recall that when he was uh, nominated as the designated successor to Hu Jintao in 2007, that is to take over five years later in 2012, really nobody at the time, uh, and certainly nobody I've really dug up in China, let alone overseas, foresaw the type of leader that he would become. Nobody sort of said when he was the successor, oh, my God, this guy's going to take a hammer to China and the party in the world and really stir things up. He was a compromised choice between dominant factions, if you like, and the Council of Elders. But the compromised choice turns out to be the really uncompromising leader. And very briefly, why is that? I would say the first thing is the Bolshe Lai scandal in 2012. If you read the official Chinese press these days, that is painted as a you know, virtual attempt at a coup d'etat. In other words, she was being targeted by rivals within the party, an astounding thing to play out uh, in Chinese politics. And I think the second uh, and related part of that, uh, and this relates to the anti-corruption campaign, I think he saw the pillars of party power, you know, the military, uh, big state-owned enterprises, uh, much of the finance system and other parts of the party all potentially crumbling, you know, the, the Soviet moment, albeit for different reasons. And that's why when he came to power, it's almost as if he pushed the panic button and, and unleashed a just volley of uh, policy measures, and he hasn't really stopped in five years. So it, it's fascinating the, the the history that you bring up, and and the questions that we still have as to uh, the degree, for example, to which he uh, supports Mao versus Dong, or uh, Lenin versus Stalin, or Confucius, or is he a legalist? And and it, you know we're back in a way to the old the old Sovietology. Uh, but your point is that he he certainly reveres them them all. Now, the, the question everyone has is, is he a new strongman? Or is this really 
a continuation of collective leadership. Uh, but as you mentioned just at the end here, under conditions in which Xi Jinping feared that the the pluralization and liberalization that had been taking place under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao could threaten the party's survival. Is, is he uh, a, a strong man who has decided that enough is enough uh, for the what the past 20 years or so had been bringing until he came to power in 2012? Or is he really continuing the the post-Mao Dong era collective leadership approach? Well, I think in some respects in China, there's a policy continuum. So if you see issues like China's claim on the South China Sea, uh, China's you know territorial disputes with Japan up to a point, um, the ideology of the party in general, uh, I think they've always been there. They've sometimes been buried. Uh, because, of course, you know, under Deng's policy, hide your light, bide your time, you know, China was tactically um, uh, quite restrained for a long period of time. Uh, but Xi Jinping, of course, has come to power at a very different time than his predecessors. China is richer, it's more powerful, uh, its military has much greater capabilities. Uh, Xi himself, of course, is more assertive and decisive, but nonetheless, he's got uh, much uh, more powerful tools to play with. So he can push the boat out on all manner of policies that his predecessors uh, might have wanted to have done, but simply didn't have the means to do so. So I think the, that's the first thing. Second thing is, though, he's undoubtedly a different leader from uh, Hu Jintao and, and Jiang Zemin. Now, without sort of front-running uh, your questions about uh, the book The Party, I think it's very. this is a, a very opposite point, because when I wrote that, um, uh, China had moved into a period of collective leadership. And if you're to, you were to look back at that book and say, you know, what was right, what was wrong, well, certainly I did not foresee at that time a return to strongman leadership. You know, I... The, you know, the idea was that China was a big, complex country. It could no longer be sort of pushed around by a single person. Uh, you needed a collective leadership, uh, both to share power amongst the elites or amongst powerful groups, but you also need a collective leadership to manage the complexity of policy. Well, that turns out not to be true, um, because I think uh, Xi Jinping is a, th is a throwback to strongmen. Um, very briefly, why is that? I think that he might think, he might look back at leaders uh, in, in China who got things done in both a good and bad way. Uh, Mao Zedong, uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, they were both in their ways strong men. Um, and I think that she thinks the only way to get stuff done in China is to be a strong man, to cut through the, uh, the layers of bureaucracy and the like, to make political examples of enemies and beyond that. Um, so I think, yes, it's fascinating as China becomes more powerful, it's gone back to its being a much more dictatorial system. So with that then, I, I'm assuming then that you come down on, on the side of those who see these really fundamental changes, the references uh, to Xi Jinping, which, which started uh, about three, four, three years ago, I think, uh, or so, two to three years ago, as the core of the party, something that uh, had not been uh, uh, shared with uh, Hu Jintao as the core of the party, and uh, a rewriting of uh, of party documents always to include him as the core, the enshrinement of Xi Jinping thought uh, 
in the Constitution uh, after the uh, the Party Congress, the 19th Party Congress in 2017. Uh, and most recently, we have Xi Jinping thought on foreign affairs in a new era. So do you really do see this then as as the consolidation uh, of power, and I guess we could also say in the ninth, the uh, at the nineteenth party congress, the new standing committee of the Politburo did not have uh, who anyone who could be deemed a clear successor uh, to Xi. So you really do see this then as as the consolidation uh, of power in one man and around one man. Is that correct? I, I, I certainly do, but I guess the question is, um, you know, what comes next, uh, and how are people responding to that? Hence the backlash. Uh, the, hence the backlash. So, so maybe you I mean, can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I've divided that, you know, into looking at backlash domestically and overseas. I think it's pretty obvious overseas. We can we can talk about that, but that's um, uh, certainly the case in Australia, America, Canada, France, Germany, uh, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Even though you and I will be excommunicated for calling that overseas in regards yeah. to China. Um, Wait, we haven't been excommunicated yet. <laughs> Well, I mean, I have. I don't know about you. Yeah, maybe it's lost in the mail. <laughs> um, but um, um, so that's, you know, overseas and we can talk about that, but that's pretty much out there. Domestically, obviously, it's much harder to judge. You know, it's a very opaque system uh, and the like. And certainly I'm not saying that, uh, you know, Xi Jinping is in trouble. And in fact, you know, we, we, we might have, I might have timed my book three months earlier because I think the breakdown in the trade talks with the US has produced a kind of rally around the flag moment in China, all hands on deck. It's very hard to stick your head up at the moment and criticize Xi Jinping. But that was different, I think, uh, a year ago. Um, and to explain what I've written, I'll, I'm going to divide it up, and this is very crude, uh, into what you might call good enemies, bad enemies. If you think of the anti-corruption campaign, it, I think it's way beyond just she using that to take out enemies. Certainly that has happened. But the numbers of people in the old nomenclatura, you know, the elite, uh, if you look at that, about 400 um, elite officials have been felled in the party corruption campaign, including about 100 generals. Now, if you think about that, these are people who've lived lives of power, privilege, wealth, not only them, multiply them by about a hundred or a thousand each. You know, people who lived off them, their family members, people who invested alongside them, uh, people who invested for them and the like. You know, th these are vast networks of wealth and power. And Xi Jinping has basically destroyed them. Uh, so he's got a lot of enemies as a result of public uh, anti-corruption campaign who would, who would love nothing better than to see him fall flat on his face. Now, that's not about to happen. They were one elite. They've been replaced by another elite. But I think if there's lessons from any political system, including China, maybe especially China, is that a campaign of that dimensions uh, has a long tail. Um, the anger it creates doesn't just disappear. So that's the bad enemies. The good en enemies, there's an array of them in China. Um, the technocratic elite uh, angry at his management of the economy and his focus on state enterprises, even though he's modified that in recent months. Anger had his handling of US-China relations and foreign policy in general, you know, making China a big target, being overly assertive. Angry at his handling of legal reform, sending that backwards and 
and locking up um, a whole number of uh, rights lawyers. And I think most importantly of all is the, the abolition of term limits for the presidency, which really makes him president in perpetuity, because that is the symbolic reform uh, of Deng's to pre prevent dictatorship taking hold again in China. Um, so by in doing that, um, you know, he's sort of winding back in a very uh, brutal fashion all manner of, um, you know, incremental reform in China. But most importantly, one of the party's great successes, I would say, in recent times, and that is the peaceful handover of power. So as a, I've been struck in the times I've gone back to China about how furious people were uh, about all those things, particularly term limits. Um, but, you know, you can't organise very easily against uh, somebody like Xi Jinping. So a lot of it is impotent for the moment. But I certainly, I think that the issue of the succession will come back in 2022 when we have the next once in five years party congress. So that's the sort of landscape I've attempted to sketch uh, at home in China. So the uh, question of 2022 is is clearly going to be one that is central, as you say. It'll be the 20th Party Congress. It'll also be a year before the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. So the 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 great question of is this now the new normal, and and Xi Jinping staying on potentially as long as he wants, at least in his theory, uh, versus this regular handover. And in fact, we may be looking back at the, the handover uh, from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, and though it was under different circumstances from Deng Xiaoping to Jiang Zemin as the outlier. And in fact, what what is going back with uh, with Xi is, is actually the more natural attempt by one person to to dominate control of of the party. So when 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 do watchers start paying attention to this? Uh, you said it'll come back, but what is it? What are the the signals? Is it the run up to the party? Is it the preparation for the party congress? When when is it that this could actually start playing out in terms of both elite politics and more broadly in society? Well, you're absolutely right. This could be the the, the new normal or reversion to the mean, and uh, more recent history was the aberration. Um, uh, we'll see about that. It's pretty unpredictable. Uh, I certainly of the view that the Xi system can't last. Um, there's too much stress within the system. When and it will we cannot see it? last. It cannot no, last. No, I mean, but then you might say to me, "What's what? When will it fall apart?" And of course, right. I have no answer to that. Um, you know, I know all sorts of people who speak about China and confidently pitch, but you know, I, I really. Um, that's I'm how we always, make our livings, Richard. I, I know, I know. Don't take it away why, from us. It's all no, we got going. That's why I've got to do more <laughs> of it. Um, but I think when does it? When you know? I think you know. In terms of the party preparation for the party congress. It's in late 2022. You know, 2021 is when, you know, a, a great deal of work of the party secretary uh, and his cohorts, this after all is a political machine as well as a policy-making machine running a country. It's a political machine. So you've got to start moving the personnel around the chessboard in 2021. Um, and that's when I think all the sharp elbows come out. Uh, that's when we should start to get an indication of um, uh, who's up, who's down, uh, what concessions she is making to potential rivals, uh, how uh, absolutely firm his grip 
on the system is, of course, if you, as you say, that is a big year, um, lots of anniversaries. We've got the 70th anniversary of PRC this year. 2021, in some respects, might be even bigger, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party. Uh, so that means tight politics. So I'm I'm sort of looking at towards the end of uh, 2021 um, after that moment, or maybe even in preparation for it, uh, to see the, the jostling start. Yeah, yeah. I, I had it backwards, uh, which showing that I'm a historian and not a not a mathematician, that the 20th party, there's too many 20s here, the 20th party Congress in 2022 will be one year after the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party in 2021. So yes, so it's a very, it's a very fraught. In fact, what, what you'll be seeing, I think, actually starting from this year through that period is a very, you know, is a very fraught uh, era for the party. Uh, this year, of course, was the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen, as well as the 100th anniversary of the May 4th movement, both of which were basically buried uh, in China. Uh, we have the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic in October of this year. Uh, certainly not a time when you want to see mass demonstrations against China in Hong Kong, let alone other places that are are on on the mainland like Xinjiang or, or Tibet, uh, and then moving into these other these other areas. So it's really a time that is going to test both Xi Jinping as well as the party's ability to navigate uh, and just dealing with ordinary everyday governance, uh, a slowing economy, uh, that obviously the trade war with the United States, South China Sea, which raises the question of the party itself. And maybe this is a good point as as we begin to, to wind down, uh, to go back to the book, uh, to the party. Um, anyone who hasn't read it needs to read it, but but it is 10 years out of date. And as I was rereading it uh, just uh, a week ago or so preparing for this, I was at so many stages saying, man, I wish Richard would do an update. Um, if you were going to do an update, what would you update? And we talked a little bit about the strongman. I was actually going to quote that part, uh, but what would you update in the party? And and where did, what did you get right? And if if there was something you got wrong, uh, what was it? What changed? Well, there's always faults in any book, and I always used to say, luckily at the time, not many spotted the ones in my book. Um, the uh, strongman issue, uh, you know, I, I didn't foresee. Um, I'm not sure I could be blamed for that, but I didn't foresee the return to strongman rule. Uh, I also think there's one there's one very big missing chapter in the book, um, and that's yeah. you know I, I, I tried to go through you know, the various party centers of power or party departments, organization department, propaganda department, and the like. I didn't have a chapter on the United Front Department. Yes, now, right. In my defense with books, and you would know this, you basically have to stop writing and push it out the door. And I ran out of time and I had an idea how to do that, but I didn't do it. I think back then, the United Front Department, as you know, is the department which aims to sort of bring the non-party forces uh, uh, into line or at least neutralize them. Uh, overseas Chinese communities are important, an important part of that. And so I think the most important targets for the United Front Work Department is Taiwan and Hong Kong. So it's a kind of, um, it's a bit of a glaring gap in the book these days, as some people have um, uh, rudely uh, pointed out to me. And, you know, I have no comeback because you can't use the excuse of time. 
But that I think, I, but I also think the United Front Department has become more important, really, uh, in the last 10 years. It was always a relative backwater to the other departments, but maybe not so much now, particularly when you look at what's happening in um, uh, Hong Kong and what has been happening and will continue to happen uh, in Taiwan. And I think and this is... Uh, not to interrupt, I just want to say, and, and is one reason possibly that... Uh, um, Xi Jinping's father ran the United Front Work Department, at least for a period, did he not? Uh, I, I think that's right. Um, but you see himself as as an official in Fujian province and the like, which obviously is you know close to Taiwan, has always been very familiar with its work and placed emphasis on it and discussed it and made speeches about it in recent years when he's talking about you know, the sort of global kinship of uh, people with Chinese blood and the like. So I, th I think it's it's more important um, uh, than it was back then. But I think it's really a, you know, a great failure as well. So let me get, illustrate that briefly for you in two ways. If you look at countries like Australia, where we've had a big debate about this, it doesn't really work, you know, to try and rally or use the local community in your service uh, for many reasons, because it's very um, sharp politics domestically. Um, but secondly, look at, uh, at, at, um, at Taiwan and Hong Kong. Both places, in different ways, uh, really don't want in any way to be uh, run <clears throat> by the Communist Party. It's been absolutely unpersuasive. I mean, it's, it's, it's persuaded certain business elites, and we all know why they can do that, because it's utter self-interest. But in terms of building broad public support, and not just neutralising potential political opponents. Uh, you know, the, the Communist Party edicts just don't go down well in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, and I don't know whether there's any coming back for that, from that. What else uh, would you have done differently, potentially? Or where do you think the book really needs uh, an update in addition to if you had the chance to put in a United Front Work chapter? Well, it would do with something on the United Front Work Department, then you would be covering all the bases. And I guess mm. one of the hardest things I struggle with in writing that book is really coming to grips with the military and, you know, military right. party relations and the like. Uh, I'm not and was not an expert on that. And it's also, I think, at the time was uh, harder to research. In fact, I only really felt I came to grips with it when I went to Taiwan, where people were much more easily able to talk about it. I also think these days, in general, uh, there's much more open source material on the party and the military, and you're getting lots of good writing on that these days. And I think um, I sort of uh, bluffed my way through that chapter, to be honest. Um, and <laughs> You're and very honest. And and I I, I could do uh, I could I could you know learn a lot more if I had time to redo it. Well, we are we are almost. Um, and by the way, that's probably the most honest thing I've ever heard an author say. So we appreciate that. Um, we're yes, almost out of time. I didn't spend I didn't spend it long enough in America, as you know. In the, in the states, modesty in any form is a capital crime. But I've come back to Australia. <laughs> And That's right. Aust Australians are much more trained to be self-deprecating, so I'm being re retrained here. You're, you are. You're, you're returning to the roots. Um, 
Let me ask, we, we really only have a few minutes because we know that, uh, uh, you, you know, you've got a lot of things that you're doing uh, in the winter down there. Um, but uh, the role of Australian-Chinese relations has actually become uh, something that Americans have watched in terms of the types of pressure that Beijing is putting on U.S. allies as well as its own trading partners. It obviously has become a, a major domestic issue. Um uh, in electoral politics uh, and the role of, speaking of the United Front Work Department, uh, in Australian society, the role of students, Chinese students being organized. And we just had another clash on uh, uh, an Australian campus uh, just a week ago or so. Um, where do you see things standing and, and where do you see them going? Well, it is quite amazing that every day we have stories about China in the in the media, there's so many little brush fires and actually big strategic uh, issues as well. We've had, you know, disputes at the international swimming uh, championships with allegations of people right. trying to drug cheats. We have the students' campus issues. We had a casino scandal the other day involving Xi Jinping's cousin, who turned out to be it turns out to be a high roller. Uh, lots of uh, issues. Lots of politicians speaking out. Um, and the like. But then there's the big issues like the Pacific and Papua New Guinea, which for Australia uh, are extremely important, the front line, strategic front line, if you like. There's our relations more generally with Southeast Asia and then uh, Japan and India, which are all about uh, China um, and the like. And of course, with the big debate, you know, it's odd to come back to Australia and find that the United Front Work Department's almost a household name down here. Right. Uh, an issue of um, political influence and interference in Australia uh, generally. And that's a devilishly difficult issue to handle because, you know, you often get into issues of, you know, race uh, and the like. Um, so it's, um, you know, we've muddled through. It might look very pretty from afar, but the system has sort of geared up to try and push back. As a result, China has really kept us in the diplomatic deep freeze or fridge for about a year or two now. We have no real political, uh, genuine political or discussions or ministerial level uh, talks these days. Um, uh, and of course, this is the new normal. I don't know how it plays out. Uh, it also plays into our relationship with the US, which is our security partner as opposed to China, our main uh, economic partner, trade partner, I should say. So it's uh, the new normal in Australia, and we're sort of, uh, to, to quote uh, Dung, we're uh, crossing the river by feeling the stones, and um, quite <laughs> often, quite often falling in. Well, hopefully, you have some friends that are out there as well to help you get out of the river, uh, meaning the United States, and that's probably something to talk about next time. As well as uh, there's a lot more I think to talk about in terms of how Australia. Uh, sees the strategic situation, uh, you know, both from the security angle, but from the economic angle, uh, human rights uh, and politics and liberalization. Um, but we, uh, at this point, are are out of time. Uh, we have loved having you on. Um, as always, your your thoughts are incredibly insightful. Uh, urge everyone to get the party, even without the United Front Work Department chapter, and get uh, Xi Jinping the backlash. And um, hopefully, as we continue on, we will uh, be able to speak with you again about all of this. Look, I really appreciate it, um, and uh, I hope to 
be through your way your, your way of the woods soon and uh, see you at Hoover. Th- thank yeah, you. Yeah, you you have to come by and and tell us when you're you're back over here. You have a lot of friends who are looking forward to seeing you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Richard. And uh, now I'm going to turn it over to John. Well, that was a great interview with our new friend or old friend, Richard McGregor. I always wondered in Australia, when you meet someone, you say, good day, mate. What happens when you say goodbye? Do you say goodbye, mate? And what if it's, is it nighttime? You say goodnight, mate. I don't know. I've never been there, so I, I don't really know. What do and you think? It's, and it's winter. So you have to say something like, keep warm, mate. Yeah, so we'll have to get him back on the show just to go through these fine points of Australian culture. Um, but before we go, I thought it'd be fun if we would uh, just take a few minutes to talk about the recent developments since our last podcast out in Asia. And of course, I think the number one story on everyone's minds has got to be the protests in Hong Kong. So, uh, Misha, why don't you... Uh, Bring the listeners quickly up to date on what's been going on in Hong Kong and then what your read of it is. Do you think that we're headed for another Tiananmen Square or maybe we're may, – are we maybe headed towards some more peaceful resolution, a kind of compromise between uh, Hong Kong and China where China actually honors its, agree- its treaty with Great Britain when Hong Kong was handed over? Yeah, I think the odds of that are nil, uh, that China is going to live up to its agreements or uh, unfortunately show any restraint. Uh, you know, I think we're getting towards what may be the biggest crisis in Chinese uh, domestic and foreign politics uh, since 1989. And and I hope the world's paying attention, John. I mean, you know, you, you said they are, but this is uh, week 10 of protests. And in fact, they've expanded it the, the Democratic uh, protesters, who again, just to remind our our loyal audience, are protest started by protesting a an anti uh, or an extradition law. So they were against an extradition law that would have allowed um, people arrested in Hong Kong to be shipped off to China, where of course there's no there's no rule of law, there's no individual protections or rights or anything like that. Uh, so they were uh, uh, opposed to that, but it has expanded beyond that into a much broader um, uh, revolt against the creeping control over Hong Kong that uh, Beijing is exercising, and particularly exercising through a pro-Beijing uh, legislative council. Um, what's happened over the past week is that the the demonstrations have become more and more violent. Over the past couple of weeks, of course, the legislative council itself was invaded. Uh, stormed by the protesters. Um, The Chinese office, uh, the outside of the Chinese office in Hong Kong was defaced. Um, There have been uh, widely um, attested reports and and video of pro-Beijing triad gangs being unleashed on protesters, and the police have increasingly uh, become uh, less restrained. So there's, there's running battles in malls and on the streets. This week, the protesters this weekend, the, pro- the protesters have taken over the airport. Uh, so they're pulling a page from the 2008 Thai protests where protesters uh, against the military government were taking over the airport. Um, and this is really, I think, we're getting to the point where Beijing is going to have to decide uh, not uh, when it intervenes or not how, if it intervenes, but how and when. Um, the biggest thing that Xi Jinping does not want and will not stand for 
is that these protests against what is in essence China continue to October 1st, which is the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic. Um, it's going to, it could inspire copycat protests. So we're getting perilously close to something happening, whether it's paramilitary forces, direct PLA, uh, an army of triad members coming out onto the streets um, because China will not allow Hong Kong to retain the type of independence that it has had. Um, and we're heading towards something incredibly bloody, John. Well, why uh, are there uh, no, um, how would I put it, is there no division that you think even within the Chinese government about how to respond? So if you go back and look at Tiananmen, uh, there was, it seemed at the time, uh, disagreement even within the leadership of the Chinese government about whether to accommodate the protesters, whether or to clamp down hard and eventually the hardliners won and clamped down. Uh, do you think there's any kind of similar division within the government now, or is it just Xi Jinping is clearly leading us towards, uh, you know, some kind of violent confrontation, and there's really no dissent within the yeah, Chinese government this time? I, I doubt it because this um, government and every government since uh, 1989 learned the lesson of 1989, where they felt that the party and the state almost fell because of the protests. And in fact, what happened, of course, right after that is that right after the massacre is that uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, essentially had a, a public con congratulatory session for the army. Uh, there were um, reports uh, published later that showed the degree of, uh, as, you, as you rightly point out, um, division and uncertainty and dissension within the leadership ranks. Uh, and that is something that Xi Jinping uh, un undoubtedly has taken to heart. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't people who, um, you know, don't have a different view on what to do, but the idea that they are, that they are not going to have a lockstep approach, uh, probably even within the inner councils, uh, is, is belied um, is belied by the history. So um, uh, it's that said, you know, this is extraordinarily complex. So that said, they do not want to send the military or even paramilitary into Hong Kong. What they had hoped was that the Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong police would be able to handle this. That's that's the dilemma. Now, Beijing was relatively quiet in the first weeks of this because they figured, look, this will peter out like prior protests have petered out. Um, the Hong Kong police will shut it down if need be, and the, the government will figure out a way to to uh, to basically bury all of this. Um, and that is not what has happened. So they are faced with the worst of all worlds from their perspective. They don't want the world watching them march into Hong Kong. They don't want uh, pictures of, of rivers of blood. And don't forget, unlike Tiananmen in 1989, there are hundreds of thousands of foreigners in Hong Kong. Uh, there are tens of thousands of Americans in Hong Kong. So this would be something that would be a crisis unlike any China has faced, which is why I think they've been so hesitant, even though the rhetoric has hardened over the past weeks. But if this starts going into September, Xi Jinping is going to watch that October date, and he doesn't want to do this on September 29th. So I think the U.S. government and governments around the world have to be prepared for some type of Chinese action sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I got a. Uh, I mean, I have a. The view I have is sort of one of puzzlement because um, having Hong Kong in the current state it's been since the handover has been undeniably good for China. Hong Kong has uh, given it access to world capital markets, 
and entrepreneurship, innovation, and just a lot of money, right? It's, this is the uh, uh, golden egg. Uh, what I don't understand is why there's a desire, why there would be a desire on the part of Xi Jinping to change the status quo. You know, things went back to the way they had been before the protests. And, uh, you know, Hong Kong um, is left in the, you know, has two, you know, one country, two systems. But there's no effort to expand Chinese government control in Hong Kong. I don't see why that's not good enough for Xi Jinping. I mean, why kill the goose that's laying the golden eggs? Yeah, I think, look, we're, we're probably never going to um, uh, know exactly what uh, he is uh, thinking in terms of specifically this, because uh, they do not want in inner papers uh, of their decisions at the standing uh, committee published the way that they were for, for Tiananmen, like the Tiananmen Square papers um, that were published by Columbia professor Andrew Nathan. Um, that is not something that they're going to want to allow. But I think the answer, if there is one, is precisely that um, this is a different uh, government in Beijing, different party that feels now that they don't need Hong Kong quite as much. I, I think they're they're wrong in that, but their sense is that they are so much stronger. Don't forget, you know, when the handover happened in '97, you were you, know, you were five years into the rebooted reforms, and China was a much smaller and less complex uh, economy than it is today. Um, I, th I think their sense is is, and it's one of hubris, and and it's one that uh, may misread a lot of the um, the experiences of the past twenty years or so. Uh, but it, it is it is that you know they are uh, have all their rights to now take over Hong Kong more fully. Look, it's what they've been doing by by clamping down on the judiciary, clamping down on the legislative, clamping down on the media, and and so on. Um, so I you know I I think that. Whereas we would look at it that this is a benefit for for China, uh, I think the the entire tenor of of Xi's reform policies has been to to increase. I mean, the core of it, of course, is to increase Communist Party control, increase discipline, and the like. This is something that they have not been able to do in Hong Kong to the degree that they want. Look, they love to not have to fire a shot and for Hong Kong to say, um, you know, we, we want to merge more with China. In fact, that's what spokesmen in China are talking about, that what is needed is a greater merging of China and Hong Kong uh, to help, for example, alleviate high land prices because, you know, Hong Kong is one of the most expensive property markets in the world. So all of this is, is uh, you know, really, I think, a, a function to some degree of a different type of Chinese leadership that we're seeing, um, one that is um, filled with an arrogance and a hubris, as well as, as at the same time, a sense of insecurity, um, but uh, that is uh, much more willing to, to take direct action. What I wanted to ask you, John, about this was, you know, you've, you've served in uh, the White House and in, in the U.S. government. Um, to what degree do you think that um, the the responsible parties here are really starting to to plan for a, a, a bad, if not worst case scenario. Well, one one thought I've always had: if I'm sitting there in the White House and I'm John Bolton, at one level, uh, you don't mind. I mean, let me say, don't mind is the wrong word. Um, this has a uh, maybe unforeseen positive to it, which is. If you wanted to do something to persuade the other countries in the Indo-Pacific region not to trust China, 
and to help the uh, United States build this alliance system we're trying to build to contain growing China, the effort to overturn the liberal world, world order, then Hong Kong's a great example. Are you ready to have what they're doing in uh, their own provinces to their own people? And then you have an example where they can't be trusted to keep their word to Great Britain. And you could see, you could, you know, the United States, I think, can fairly say to the countries, big and small in the region, do you want to fall under the influence of a country that treated Hong Kong, which is no real threat to the security of China, is actually financially, you know, economically a great help to China's growth? Look how they're treating Hong Kong now. Do you want to be part of that system? They'll treat you the same way. You know, that's, uh, that's uh, the, but on the other hand, you know, I don't, you know, the other hand, if you're John Bolton, you sit there and you're pricing, what, what could we really do? You know, there are, you know, rumors that uh, President Trump agreed uh, in the last summit with the Chinese to mute American criticism of what happened in Hong Kong, of what's happening in Hong Kong. So if you're the US government, you know, we're already having a hard time using economic sanctions just to get rid of the government in Venezuela, which is in our own backyard and is, of course, many, many, many times weaker and smaller than China. So you sit there and you say, well, what could we do? <clears throat> I mean, the one area where we could have a big effect, we didn't really do this after Tiananmen, but one area we could is in economics. But we're already doing that because of our uh, you know, trade war with China. You know, there aren't a lot of other contacts other other means of pressuring China uh, and over its conduct in Hong Kong, other than what we should do in our own interest anyway, which is right, strengthen the alliances, you know, slowly as we are moving our military assets out to the Pacific, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, trying to uh, get the Chinese to play by the rules in uh, world trade. So the thing that strikes me about this, just, I don't know what you think, Misha, the thing that strikes me about this is despite all the criticism of President Trump for being a disruptor and questioning our alliances, which he's doing, uh, I, I see so much uh, demand for American leadership. You know, I, I just struck in Asia how people want the United States to come in and display leadership. They they they're willing to foot the bill in many ways, not like it was in much of the Cold War. And uh, it's a quite just the question is whether the United States is going to, you know, create a vacuum by pulling further out pulling away from Asia or whether it's going to take advantage of this opportunity, even though it's going to be uh, unfortunately harmful to the people in Hong Kong um, to right, take. A, so maybe, uh, you know, when we're thinking of it, it's, I don't know, I was trying to think about in the European example, you know, when you have the uh, uprisings in Czechoslovakia and Hungary in 56 and 68, uh, you know, at least one thing that, you know, even though the United States couldn't really do anything about the Soviets and how they clamped down on both of those protests. You know, the, I think Eisenhower basically said in private, "We're not going to wage a nuclear war," uh, you know, to support those um, movements. But it made very clear to the rest of the world the difference between living in what we used to call the free world and living under communist government. And maybe that's what you know. That's the best we can make of what happens in Hong Kong as a matter of American policy. But what? Yeah, well, think- what would you do if you were Secretary of State or you know? No, I, mean, I, I, I think that's right, and I think that um, uh, that is that is certainly one of the reasons that Beijing is so hesitant to intervene. They know what this is going to look like. They know this will be hungry. They know uh, fifty six. They know that this is going to strip 
away any of the pretensions of the peaceful rise or diplomacy with a smile or all the things that they tried to have. Um, you know, I think I think after two years, um, the the region honestly is is less concerned about a U.S. pullout. I think that um, the amount of attention that has been spent, both personally by the president as well as his top, in fact, as we speak, Mike Pompeo is wrapping up a uh, a long trip to the region, including the first Secretary of State to go to uh, some of the the uh, uh, the Pacific Island states in in Polynesia and Micronesia, um, the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, the new defense secretary, Mark Esper, has been out there. They, in fact, did joint meetings in Japan. Um, uh, obviously, the president has been out multiple times. He was in Japan twice this year alone. So uh, I think that, you know, for all the hand wringing and, and the punditry about, you know, the U.S. withdrawing, it's just it's belied. Uh, by the facts um, of of at least the the attention that the administration continues to pay to Asia, and and that is uh, at least from what I hear, um, reassuring. The the uncertainties are because China is so large. Uh, I'm not saying there weren't earlier uncertainties, but that's not I think what the issue is. It's that China is so large, so assertive, so aggressive that even if the United States were Ten times as powerful as it is today, I think there would still be the same worry among Asian states that that the largest Asian power is acting is acting aggressively uh, and assertively. And so, what the administration faces uh, is what other administrations have faced, which is, you know, this this is an outcome in part of U.S. policy to help strengthen China over decades and to make it a larger and more powerful country. One that right now um, wants to get the U.S. Uh, it, at least reduce the U.S. role, if not get it out of Asia entirely. You know, 10 years ago, we used to say, and I think with reason, that China didn't want the U.S. to leave Asia. It was worried about uh, a resurgent Japan. It was worried about its own strength. Um, today, it doesn't It doesn't have nearly those same worries. And um, certainly from the naval perspective, it has a, a much stronger Navy. Um, it is building a stronger Air Force. Um, it has a stronger missile program. It, you know, it doesn't like the U.S. being the dominant power in in the region. Um, and the strengthening of China has come about in part because we helped it enter into this global world and, and allowed it to become rich and assume that it was going to start acting in ways that would be cooperative. So, um, you know, in in terms of the the sense that uh, what can we do, um, that that's sort of an existential question that I think American presidents are going to be facing going forward now, um, short of some type of implosion or collapse of of communist China, which may or may not come. But if it does come, would create its own set of problems. And part of that may be posed actually by what we're seeing on the trade front. What's your what's your take on? We're yeah, getting a lot of, you know, a lot of information on trade. So what's what's yeah, going on? Do you no, think? I agree. I no, I agree with that. You know, you could see uh, American presidents. I'm not sure this is exactly what Trump's motivation is with the current trade war with China, but it sort of fits with one approach to I think the strategic question, which is if you really thought that we're entering something like a Cold War with China, nothing as severe as we did with the Soviet Union, but you know, we identify China as the main rival. Um, their power is growing, as you were just uh, mentioning. Uh, look at all the areas where it's building up its armed forces. Uh, then what would we do in response? Given that we have seen that the regime 
uh, is uh, managed in an uh, unfriendly way with values that are hostile. Not you know not just certain values that we don't have, but values that seem to be hostile to the West. Well, then one thing you would say is maybe we should reverse our economic policies that uh, integrated China into the world trading system. Uh, that have right, they've been good for China. You know, the estimates are. 500 million people uh, in, during the opening have moved from poverty into something like a middle class in China. It's, you know, my economist friends say it is the, uh, you know, the largest, you know, growth and largest example of economic growth in a short period of time in the history of the world. Uh, I, I think that's undeniably true. But you know, if that if the surpluses that are generated by their growing economy are not divert are not being used to you know bring the other 500 million people into the middle class, but instead being diverted for military purposes for a regime that seems to be hostile to the West. Then you know we you know things that Trump are doing is doing now uh, could be part of a larger term strategy to respond. So you know as you mentioned, Misha, since our last uh, show, there have been several uh, developments. Uh, just uh, in the last day, President Trump. Uh, suggested that there may no be may be no deal on trade with China by the time of the November 2020 elections. He announced that the United States was going to increase tariffs by 10 percent on um, basically the rest of the China U.S. China Chinese exports to the United States. Um, China responded interestingly by letting the exchange rate uh, between the yuan and the dollar to fall to seven to one. Uh, making Chinese goods cheaper to export, a kind of a response to the tariffs. And then the United States responded by saying China is a currency manipulator, uh, something that the United States has never labeled any other country and which gives President Trump even more powers with which to sanction uh, trade with China. So you can definitely see this sort of steady tit-for-tat escalation in the trade war that's been going on. And this week, the stock market has gyrated wildly. Um, I think the markets probably are still between 2 and 4% below where they were before this, I think, because of the China-US trade war that's been going on now for over two years. I think the stock market, I think I read it somewhere back to where it was in January of 2018. So this is definitely having a cost on the US economy. Uh, it's definitely having a cost on the Chinese economy. Uh, you know, generally, conservatives say free trade is good for both countries. It is. I mean, I don't think Ricardo was wrong on, you know, comparative advantage, but it could be that some things are worth giving up the benefits of comparative advantage, and that might be preventing China from growing so quickly to be able to convert its economic strength into military strength to be used against us. Um, but I'm not sure whether that's what Trump has in mind. I'm sure that's what some of his advisors are thinking. Um, so uh, the bottom line on it is, you know, the trade war is escalating. I still think Trump has a powerful political incentive to try to reach a deal with China. Uh, if he does so by the end of this year, I think the effects uh, would still kick in to, uh, you know, for any other normal president, make his reelection a lock given that economic growth, even during the trade war, is chugging right along. Um, but 
there might be a longer-term strategic interest in not necessarily reaching a trade deal with China. It's hard to tell which one of those two, you know, the sort of short-term, short-term politics or longer-term strategy uh, is really at work here behind uh, Trump's tariffs. Yeah, I think uh, the the question of decoupling is really the interesting one and is the more fundamental one. Um, uh, the currency manipulation, as I understand it, by the way, nothing really happens immediately. There's there's sort no. of a year period where there's there's uh, investigations and then there's a, a call for some type of uh, you know reciprocity or or sanctions. So it's not that you know labeling them a currency manipulator suddenly means that we're we're in a uh, in a war uh, or a currency war, though. Um, if if Beijing continues to devalue the yuan, then of course it'll you know it's going to push the reaction here. Um, ironically, the question I think of of solving the the trade war um, or or you know uh, coming to a to a, an agreed ending to it um, maybe harder if what we were talking about before takes place, meaning if there's some type of action in Hong Kong, um, then I think it's easier um, to not actually come to an agreement with uh, with China because uh, you're you're talking about um, you know a regime that has now you know begun basically violating uh, civil rights ab- abroad and violating human rights and and the like. And so there's there's all sorts of political dynamics that that get caught up together. But in the long run, I think it's this question of of decoupling, and and we always put it into a binary, you know, either China's at the center of this new globalized economy, or somehow it's not, and therefore we all get more impoverished, right? Our our consumer goods go up, even you know, um, uh, despite the the currency devaluation, but our consumer goods go up because China's not providing them, or something, something like that. But the truth is, I think in some ways it's much healthier to have a global economy where there's there's actually more choice and more of a market. I mean, I, you know, when I was traveling through Vietnam and other countries uh, a few years ago, writing uh, my my book on the end of the Asian century, they were eager to try to break into that global uh, supply chain and, and be a, a logistics hub and w- whatever you want to uh, whatever you want to say, they were they they wanted that chance, and it was impossible for them given China's overwhelming weight, you know, just the size. And so, um, in some ways, the decoupling. I'm not saying there's there there aren't inefficiencies that are that are not introduced. There would be, but quite frankly, it would actually, I think, in the long run, create a healthier global economy if you could get Indonesia and Vietnam and Malaysia and and India and other countries. I'm just talking about the Asian ones, but other countries into uh, more fully into this uh, global trading system where they can not simply be uh, low-skilled uh, labor providers or providers of raw materials. So I think there's actually a logic to the decoupling. It, it, there's no way that China, we decouple entirely and that China no longer plays a role in our economy or the global economy. But quite honestly, China's role ha- has been abnormal, just as the growth that you mentioned at the beginning of this segment was also abnormal. So um, I, there, there, there's a there's a, a strategy I think that can be seen from this that if you go out 10, 15, 20 years, it might actually look um, like a a very disruptive period, but one that in the long run was fairly healthy. Yeah, yeah. The free marketer in me though <laughs> says, well, you know, if they'll cheapest cost cheapest costs are in china and they have the infrastructure 
you know, why should we, you know, why should we force companies to build these alternate supply chains? Uh, you know, the market would do it if it was really most efficient. Um, but you know, even granting that, I, I take your point. Even granting, suppose going, you know, forcing companies like Apple or Dell or whoever to start, you know, assembling their products in Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, but still results in a higher cost because they don't have as well-trained and educated workforce, or they don't have the as well, uh, you know, good systems of infrastructure. Still, you know, that's kind of like a tax that we're going to pay in order to achieve some longer-term strategic gains uh, in containing China. Hopefully, the regime will exhaust itself or change its ways, much as Soviet Union did. That's that's fine. I mean, I think that's fine. That's a fair price to pay, probably, um, in order to to you know, keep the nation secure from the threat of a rising China. Um, we're almost at the end of the show, but we did have one uh, reader question, which I forgot had forgotten about at the beginning of the show. Oh, which is remember, excellent. yeah. So you remember last time we talked a little bit about this little island between Korea and Japan, and then the Russia and Chinese uh, versus uh, Korea and Japan. Uh, not quite a confrontation, but uh, you know, sort of a. An interdiction in the air above this little island. And somebody wrote in, I don't know if you saw, I think she wrote it to, I think it was a her, wrote it to both of us asking us to just sort of give a little bit of the broader context about why Japan and Korea are at such odds right now. Right? You know, it's an interesting question because if you, you know, we've just been talking about grand strategy. You know, in terms of grand strategy, Korea and Japan should have a common interest, right? If we want to contain China, Japan and South Korea really want to contain China. I mean, they're in the front lines, right? They're like, you know, West Germany and Turkey in the um, during the Cold War. I mean, it's nice for us to talk about what to do about China, but they really have to live with the immediate consequences of policy out there. And it's always been an American interest to try to persuade them to tie their security closer together. And the United States has brokered, for example, efforts to for South Korea and Japan to tie their missile defense and air defense networks together. Um, but at the same time, you're seeing this huge uh, disruption in their relations. Uh, South Korea has just allowed uh, lawsuits against Japanese companies for uh, comfort women and forced labor during World War II, and Japan has responded by um, limiting, if not restricting completely, exports of sensitive uh, goods needed for building high-tech products going from Japan to South Korea. So you have these uh, definite, uh, uh, not complete breakdown, but the start of it between these two close American allies. So what, what do you, uh, you know, Misha, you're a Japan expert. What's the, what, how do you explain this to the, re, to the, to the reader in response to their question? Well, um, you know, you've put it uh, the, the, the right way and we've talked about it a little bit. This is a longstanding um, dispute, both over the specifics of, of the, um, uh, the ban uh, that Japan placed on uh, the chemicals uh, to be exported, but also the deterior the larger deterioration of relations. Um, what Japan will argue, and I, I think we may have talked about this last time, but you know Japan will argue that this actually goes back a decade or fifteen years where China uh, where South Korea has not been abiding by international norms for de 
declaring end country users of exported materials. And so Japan has very strong restrictions against the um, the export of materials that can be used for offensive weapons. And uh, they argue that they have been trying to get South Korea to make it clearer who would get these chemicals in sort of a pass-through sense uh, that they wouldn't fall into the hands of regimes that use them against their own people or, or whomever. Um, and in fact, they say that they're actually just treating Korea the way that the EU does, so that they're actually norming their own export practices with uh, with the European Union. Um, that said, Tokyo has approved some exports this week. It looks as if they're trying to tamp down um, this, this confrontation between them. Uh, but there is very little appetite in Japan to deal with a Korea that continually walks back from the agreements that were painstakingly made between the two, uh, both in recent years, as well as they would argue all the way back to 1965 and the normalization of relations. Um, they argue that it's Korea that has politicized uh, all of these these different issues uh, that Japan has made its good faith efforts. Uh, it, it came to an agreement with the prior Korean government uh, about comfort women, uh, and that is something that the Koreans decided to walk away from. The, re the recent Supreme Court decision in Korea um, that allows companies to sue or allows Koreans to sue Japanese companies uh, is one that the Japanese argue was dealt with in the 1965 agreement. So uh, you have politics here that um, despite the fact that these two countries have uh, very high exchanges of tourists. They have very high exchanges of students, particularly Korean students in Japan. Um, their 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 consumer and popular culture is almost indistinguishable. If you go to the two, and sometimes you forget which one you're in, um, there is still an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult uh, history that has not been gotten over. Uh, you know, I think that neither one will want to see relations fully crater, but they are probably as close as they've been. Uh, in years to uh, and a potentially unanticipated full rupture between Seoul and Tokyo. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I uh, you know, to just add on a little bit, there's something that's always struck me as the difference in the peace that prevailed in uh, Western Europe after World War II and the one that prevailed in the Pacific. And Ger I think Germany uh, is treated very differently than Japan is, and I think. Also, Germany responded to World War II very differently uh, than Japan did, um, and uh, part of that is there wasn't, there's no, nothing like a NATO uh, that, or the European Union that really folded Japan into this tight sort of integration in East Asia the way Germany and France uh, really settled their differences and. Uh, together, kind of manage Europe, and then you see the you mentioned these legal, you know, these uh, treaties. They really do reflect that. So the San Francisco Peace Treaty is very vague and really kicks the can down the road and doesn't settle a lot of these issues like reparations for war and even territorial lines. Um, you know, the United States could have forced them to settle a lot of these at the time, but they chose not to. Uh, because China fell and had this interest in just uh, getting a peace done of any kind with Japan so they could get on with the business of uh, containing that China back in 1949, 1950. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And as you say, these uh, more uh, recent uh, developments, I think there's still uh, – I think in Korea, there's still a lot of resentment for, of Japan because Koreans often think that Japan hasn't really made up for what it did to Korea in World War II. And as you say, the Japanese feel like uh, they've already made amends and 
Korea has been breaking uh, recent agreements that try to settle these issues. And, you know, at some point they're going to have to put the differences aside just like, like they did in 1965, uh, which really was the – I think in many ways the real end of the uh, – or should have been the, the end of their disputes that still remained after World War II. Um, but anyway, so the the interesting thing, though, is that despite all these problems, when the Russians and the Chinese, uh, you know, decide to o- try to overfly uh, this island, which Korea and Japan both dispute, right? Both Korea and Japan think they own it. I, I particularly think that Korea has the better claim, but Japan also claims they have this island. They should cooperated when it came, you know, with their air forces when it came time to fighting off the Russians and Chinese. So that's my my larger hope is that the rise of China and their bad behavior actually forces all of these countries in the Pacific to play nice and cooperate and defend this you know western liberal order that's been very good for the people there and their the people and their economies and their freedoms. Well, I, I I certainly agree and and what is needed is some some creative diplomacy on both sides. Again, uh, uh, you know, the Japanese feel that they've done that, that they have these agreements. The Koreans walk them back. Uh, the Koreans, as you say, feel the Japanese haven't gone far enough. So it's it's really a stalemate, which, you know, I, I think in times like these, it's the exogenous actors then, the North Koreas and the Chinas that can force the two to come together and see that they actually have a lot more in common and interests in common that need to be responded to. Uh, than the the endless um, pull or drag of history on them. Yes. So I think that's a good place for us to stop. And uh, on behalf of uh, Misha Oslin, I'm uh, your co-host, John Yu, and I'd like to thank all the listeners for joining us for the latest edition, installment of the Pacific Century, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.